Hello, this is Jim Martin with Little Things First, and I am here to introduce part three of a four-part series about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected education. Today, we interview Mike Anderson, who is an educator, he's a consultant, he's been a teacher, and he's written extensively about how to communicate with children during this time of a pandemic and also during other times when we are teaching kids in regular classrooms. He also talks about the well-being of teachers, how to take care of ourselves so that we can best take care of our students. And he talks a lot about student choice. Listen in on this podcast. It's got a lot of great information for now and for the future. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Here's Mike Anderson. Yeah, so my name is Mike Anderson, and I'm a lifetime educator. I was a classroom teacher for 15 years. I taught third, fourth, and fifth grades. I was in East Lyme, Connecticut for six years, and then Portsmouth, New Hampshire for nine years. And while I was in the classroom, I got trained as a responsive classroom presenter and consultant. And so after I left the classroom, I did that work full-time for about six and a half years. So I wrote some of their workshops. I wrote some of their books. Um, I traveled all over consulting and working with schools, and then about five and a half years ago, I jumped out on my own as an independent consultant. So that's what I'm doing full-time now. So I work with schools. Most of the schools are actually in New England by design, because I have kids still in high school, and I don't want to be on the road all the time. Yeah. So I work with a lot of schools within a few hours of my house. But in the last year, I've also worked in schools in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Mountain Brook, Alabama, and Los Angeles. Um, so I, I do a look, I work in a lot of schools. Yeah. So as you're, if you don't mind, just a little deeper on yeah. responsive classroom, because I've not heard that term. So okay. when you make reference to that, I don't, I don't know what that refers to. Yeah, it's an approach to teaching that's primarily for elementary school teachers, although they're doing some work with middle schools now, since I left the organization. And the approach is about blending the teaching of social emotional learning and academic learning. Okay. Um, so it's about how to teach social emotional skills through daily practice. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because, right, we have, we have a group of kids that need that support, and if we don't have that SEL piece, that's kind of the social-emotional learning that's taken care of, the learning that they're taking, that's taking place academically suffers, right? That's right. You can't have one without the other. Well, and that's unfortunately the predominant paradigm in schools is that social-emotional learning is put into this little silo by itself. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, one of the reasons that I'm out on my own now is I really wanted to do more organic work with social emotional learning. Um, so the work I do now in some ways is similar. I'm still working with schools on integrating social emotional learning. Um, but instead of sort of following a program as it's constructed, I can go into a school and figure out where they're at, what they're doing well, what they might do next, and then I can help them figure out what their good next steps are. But the, the emphasis of my work also is on helping teachers think about how do I teach the social emotional skills that kids need 
during writing time or during math time. So it's not about this sort of gimmicky approach to social emotional learning that yeah. sometimes happens in schools. You know, yeah. February is empathy month. Um, right. Where we have friendship circle on Wednesday afternoon, but we're not talking about how to, how to collaborate effectively with um, classmates during math game time. Right. Um, yeah, and so then I've also written some books that um, in some ways connect with that content also. So one of the books is about choice and how do we use choice as a vehicle for helping kids learn how to self-direct their own learning a little bit so that they can really work on skills like self-motivation. Um, you know, it's often hard to work on self-motivation if, if you're always being told what to do by somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, What's the name? Latest, what was that? What's the name of that book? Uh, that one is Learning to Choose, Choosing to Learn. Um, and then my latest book is called What We Say and How We Say It Matter. And that's all about effective communication, both during academic time as well as throughout the day. Um, and the basic idea behind that book is that we all have good intentions, I believe. We all want good things for kids. And we all have to, when it comes to our language, kind of rely and depend on habits. We can't pre-think everything we're gonna say all the time. We have to kind of run on autopilot a lot of the day when it comes to language, because we're trying to do 5,000 things all at once. And I think we almost all, myself included, we all end up in at least some language habits that don't match our good intentions. So for example, I think this is one that's relevant for kids learning at home, perhaps even more now than when kids are in the classroom. I think we want kids to be self-motivated. I think we want them to feel ownership of the work, like the work that they're doing is theirs and they're not just working for us. But then very often as teachers, we'll end up saying things to kids like, okay, everyone, here are the next, here are the three things you're going to do for me next. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, I'm looking in my record book. Some of you still owe me some work from last week. Mm -hmm. Or we always talk about learning and work in the first person. I'm really excited about this and I can't wait to see what you do. And I'm going to be looking for people who are. And so as we're always talking about the work in the first person, it really makes it sound like the work is all about us, even when we want kids to own it and feel like it's theirs. So that's an example of that kind of mismatch that we sometimes get into. So how would you shift that? Well, so that particular language habit, one of the things I encourage teachers to do is talk in the second person more often. Here's something that you're gonna do next. Your challenge in this next assignment is, instead of I'm looking for or I want you to. Um, that's one simple shift we could make. Another shift we could make is to think about what's the, what's the purpose behind the work. So instead of I want you to do this, it's when you do this skill, it's gonna help you with our learning. Or we're working on this piece of writing so that we can put together an anthology and share it with our families. So we're helping kids know that, that the work has reason and meaning beyond just turning it into us. Right. Not so just because just, I told you so. Right, right. Or because we're in fourth grade and we're all supposed to be learning about haiku and so we're gonna learn yeah. about haiku. I mean, that's not yeah. terribly inspirational for a nine-year-old writer. Right. Yeah. You recently had a blog post on communicating through ASCD, on communicating with students during online learning. Yeah. And um, it kind of connects to your book. So mm -hmm. what are some um, little things our listeners should be doing to effectively communicate with students right now and then generally? Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this since you got in touch with me about this interview. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the principles of good communication don't change. Um, I, I'm looking at my own two kids' experience with at-home learning right now. They're both in mm -hmm. high school. And what I'm really noticing is 
what they talk about for better or worse is whether or not they're getting FaceTime with their teacher or direct communication from their teacher. Um, they've got a couple of teachers and they've been doing at-home learning now for three weeks. They've got a couple of them who they haven't seen yet and they're equipped for it and their teachers are equipped for it. The teachers just aren't doing it. Mm. Um, and it's making it, it's making a real negative impact on them. They're feeling disconnected from the content. They're feeling disconnected from their classmates and from their teacher. So I'd say one thing that we can all think about is just making sure that we are getting in front of our students somehow. And if it, and if yeah. it can't be online because we've got students who aren't connected to the internet, we could make, be making phone calls home or we could be sending postcards or handwritten notes to our students. I think it's that personal element of communication that shouldn't yeah. change. Um, yeah. I think maybe something that should change, and again, maybe this is something we should change anyway, but especially now, um, we should be careful about talking too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of teachers are guilty of anyway. Um, but, uh, but especially now, whether we're teaching lessons online or whether we're writing to students, to try and really cut to the chase and be brief and hit those clear bullet points of what we want kids to think about and know and do it in, in as succinct a way as possible. Um, I think that's especially important when kids are trying to do this on their home, on their own at home. Um, and again, whether you know we're in front of a computer, it's hard for kids to sit and really listen and pay attention for a long time in front of the computer. And if we're sending home assignments that take a page to read what the assignment is, um, that's going to make it hard for kids. Yeah. I love that because you know our our podcast tries to focus on the little things that make a big difference, and you know teachers I think mean well they think that they're really trying to do what they believe is best mm -hmm. but you are absolutely right even just going back to the to the level of teacher talk right and uh, often when I'm doing observations in classrooms I'll, I'll kind of track that right how much of it is you talking and how much of it is the students asking questions and talking with each other and engaging in the learning and uh, that one little thing has a huge impact on student engagement and student learning, I think. No doubt. And I once heard a teacher say, um, whoever's doing the talking is doing the thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've got to ask the question, who do we want to be doing most of the thinking in our class? Mm -hmm. um, I was working in a school in New York City once and the kindergarten and first grade teachers were they wanted sort of global feedback. And I have to say, I'm uncomfortable going into classrooms with, with too open-ended a purpose. I don't yeah. like going in to just sort of see how things are and give feedback. Yeah. I, I worry about that, but that was what I was supposed to do that day. And one of the things that I immediately noticed was how much the teachers were talking. And so I started to sort of take informal checks on my watch, you know, yeah. about how much of the time that I was in each classroom were kids talking and were teachers talking. And in that day, and the teachers were really surprised when I gave them this feedback when we had the meeting at the end yeah. of the day. About 65% of the day, kids were listening to teachers. And about 35% of the day, kids were talking with each other or doing things. Yeah. And those were yeah. five and six-year-olds. Um, yeah. And so my challenge for them was to see if they could flip that ratio. Right. You know, could you get it 65, 35 in the other direction um, by having kids do more partner chats, by simply keeping mini lessons mini. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So I used to use a, a tool, I'm trying to remember what the name is, but it's, it since has stopped um, providing its software. But what I, one of the things I loved about it is it had on the screen a little place that you could click and it was just like teacher, individual, group, right? So you'd click on the teacher talk and it would just tally up the seconds. And then when you had a kid talk, you could either click the individual or group and you'd click and it would tally up and then you'd go back to the teacher. And then if it was a group, you'd go there. And what was nice is when I walked out of the room, I had an immediate kind of uh, percentage of during these 25 minutes when I was in your room, you did 48% of the talking. Uh, you know, 1% was individuals talking or what, you know what I mean? I yeah. loved the simplicity of that. And I, uh, in fact, Jim and Mike both, why don't you guys go ahead and just develop an app that has a couple of these <laughs> easy to use on your phone because it, it's, a, again, a small thing, but we really have got to get kids talking and engaging more. And, and I would even be, um, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating tool. I would even include if we've got one kid talking and everybody listening to that one kid talking, that yeah. that's still not ideal either. Because sure. it's still 20 other people listening to one. Right. Sure. Um, so how do, you, how do you respond to teachers? Like, you know, I'm an instructional coach right now. And what I hear a lot of teachers say is the, the problem with turning that time over to students is that it, they're not responsible with it. So they talk about other issues. They talk about their weekends. Mm -hmm. They talk. So how do you keep, what recommendations do you give to teachers to keep kids on track during that? student talk time? It's such an important question. And I think the simple answer, and it's harder than this, but it's a simple answer, is we have to teach them how to do it. Mm. Um, you know, if we think about any other routine that we expect kids to be able to do independently and well, we know we have to teach it. Um, so if there's certain structures we're using for collaborative groups, we've got to teach those. Just like at the beginning of the year, we teach kids where to put backpacks and how to turn in work and what the signals of the room are and what they mean. Um, and we've got to spend really deliberate time, invest time in teaching kids how to talk effectively and then helping them reflect and grow throughout the year in those skills. Um, yeah. So here was an activity I did just recently. I was at a Jewish day school in Los Angeles and a teacher wanted me to come in and support her because her students, she said they were really good at talking to each, talking at each other, but not so good at listening to each other. Uh -huh. So she wanted me to do a demo lesson where I helped them with that skill. And they were studying the book of David. And I told her, so I'm not so much up on the book of David, but I can facilitate the, the discussion. So you come up with the questions that they're going to talk about and I'll facilitate the, the structure. And she said, okay. So she had some great open-ended questions. So I had the kids get into concentric circles. So there are nine kids in the inside circle and nine kids in the outside circle. And they all had a partner in the other circle. So they each, you know, it's, it's a fancy partner chat. Right. Yeah. So the first thing that I did, well, after we'd set up and I told them what we were doing, I gave them the question to discuss in a short amount of time to talk about it, about a minute and a half. So they each talked with each other about their response to that open-ended question. Then we shifted the circles so that everybody got a new partner. And the first thing they had to do in this next round was tell their new partner what their former partner had answered for that question. Nice. Nice. Then once they'd had a chance, they'd each share that. Then they got a new question to discuss together. 
And then we shifted the circles again. And once again, their challenge was to try and tell their new partner what their former partner had said about the last question. And after we did a couple of rounds of this, I paused and asked the sixth graders to share what strategies they were using for remembering what their previous partner had said. Because I said, this is a really hard thing to do. You've got your yeah. own ideas in your mind and you're sharing what you want to share. How do you remember what somebody else says? They came up with such cool ideas. One of them talked about how um, she was listening for keywords and trying to remember keywords. Yeah. Somebody else said that he watched his partner's mouth because huh. when he watched their mouth, he was better able to pay attention to what they're saying. Huh. Oh, it was so cool. So they, all, they came up with some great strategies. And then I said, all right, everybody. So now in the next round, we're going to try this again. Try using one of those strategies that you just heard about and see if it helps. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So we were still discussing the book of David. That was right. the content for the class. That was the goal was the kids would have rich discussions about the text that they were studying. But we were teaching, I was teaching and they were learning social skills and emotional skills about self-regulation and yeah. listening effectively and being able to paraphrase what other people were saying. Um, so they were learning discussion techniques while we were doing the academic work. So that kind of going back to what we were saying before, that's an example of how we can teach social emotional skills within the context of academic skills and not think of it as this waste of time, which I yeah. think teachers worry about. We've got all this stuff to teach, um, you know. Yeah. And yeah I, and I love that you point out, you know, listening as a social emotional skill. Cause I think we, I think like so many terms in education, yeah. misused. And so now we start to think of um, SEL as fixing kids, you know, trauma-informed practices and, you know, making sure that we have things in place to support kids through challenging times. But SEL really means, you know, being able to set goals. It's so much more than that, than, than what it's kind of being interpreted as. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, that's such a great point. So I went and did some work with a district leadership team on social-emotional learning. And this was a district that had been working on this for a couple of years. So they had a leadership team from across all of the schools that met about once a month to try and do big picture thinking for the district around social emotional learning. And they invited me in to help them move their thinking forward. So the first thing that I did after we'd done introductions and we sort of warmed up was I had everybody get with a partner and they had to define social and emotional learning. Mm. And what we discovered was even though this team had been together for quite a while, and we had been working together on this topic for quite a while, they all had different definitions. Yeah. And, it, and it often had to do with their role. So classroom teachers were thinking about both social emotional skills that got in the kids' way in the classroom, you know, kids who couldn't get along, kids who couldn't yeah. focus and pay attention. They were also thinking about discipline issues out in the playground. Um, the school psychiatrist was thinking about it from a mental health perspective. The assistant principal was thinking about it from a referral perspective. I mean, yeah. but, they, but they didn't have a common definition. And so that's something I think that's so important when we're doing this work is, you, like you said, it's so easy to sort of throw around the jargon of social yeah. emotional learning or SEL. Um, but we got to take time to make sure that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about. And rightly understood. And if, and if listeners are looking for a good resource for this, I recommend going to Castle dot org c-a-s-e-l that stands for the collaborative for academic social and emotional learning they've got a very both simple and robust framework for what social emotional learning is all about and as you said 
It's about listening skills and setting goals and being aware of yourself and, um, and all of these skills that kids need to be successful both in the classroom and out of the classroom. And, it, and of course, trauma-informed teaching connects with social emotional learning, um, but, it, but it would be narrow to think of it only in those terms. Right. Yeah, but I, I, I'm going to go back to to when you're giving that example of really having the concentric circles and having them trade and they had to listen to each other. What I really appreciate about that as well is that we sometimes just assume kids are supposed to know this by now. And, and what I like is that you had an explicitness about here's what our expectations are and, and maybe even modeled and they had them share. And I think too, we, we sometimes sort of gloss over or we kind of go over that so quickly and it refers back to even earlier when you're saying, you know, how, how do I teach it? And it's not a silo. You teach the routine and then you give feedback about what that routine and what it looks like. So uh, I appreciate that because we, again, we mean well, we're trying to get through as much as we can, as much as possible, but at the beginning of the year, that explicitness and, and being really clear about the expectations mm -hmm. helps kind of, I think, launch the year on, I don't know, having dialogue about what does it mean to be a good learner and a good friend and a participant. And focusing on it at the beginning of the year is really important for a couple of reasons. One is that it starts to help set kids up for success for the rest of the year. But I think it's also important because it gets us as educators in the habit of teaching those skills right from the start. Mm -hmm. Because we would be, um, you know, it's important to do it in the first month of school. But if on October 1st, we stop teaching routines and yeah. stop teaching skills that kids need, um, you know, the kids are going to be in trouble. So I think there's also a habit that's important there for adult, the adults leading the group. Um, and if we can get ourselves in that habit early in the year, we're more likely to keep nurturing those skills and teaching and, and supporting those skills throughout the year. That's awesome. So you have a lot of books out. Yep. <laughs> What we say and how we say it matters, the most recent one. Yep. We've got, um, we talked a little bit about learning to choose, choosing to learn. Yep. I uh, have one um, called The Well-Balanced Teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm wondering how teachers can take care of themselves during this crisis. Because, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast is mm -hmm. stress and burnout are real issues. Uh, so what kinds of things would you recommend now and also into the future? Yeah, so probably, again, I think that a lot of the, there are sort of some truths that hold wherever we are. Um, and I think one of the first things that we have to do, whether we're talking about our current situation or just teaching in general, is we have to recognize self-care as a professional responsibility. I think too often we think of it as something that's sort of on the side. You know, we'll get to it if we have time. And of course we never have time because Nobody can do everything we're supposed to do in this job. Um, you, you just can't. And then we've got to recognize that. In fact, one of the things I did in the book, I wrote the book while I was still in the classroom. And the reason I wrote the book is that I was kind of falling apart a little bit myself. Um, my two kids were infants and I was juggling being a new parent and being a fifth grade teacher. And, and I, when I, before I had kids, I thought having kids would make me a better teacher and being a teacher would make me a better dad, but instead it felt like these things were competing with each other um, for my time and my energy. And so I didn't go out to write a book. I went out to figure out how do I stay sane and balanced myself 
because I wanted to be a passionate, awesome, fiery teacher. Um, mm-hmm. But I also wanted to have something left for my kids. And, um, and I think one of the things that I found, one of the things I, well, the one, one um, little experiment I did was for an entire school year, I actually recorded on a simple computer file every minute that was taken away from my teaching. Whether it was a half day for snow that we didn't make up because it was only a half day, or whether it was a half day for professional development or bus evacuation drills that took us out of the class for 17 minutes on a Tuesday morning. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the band teacher would ask for an extra rehearsal right before we had a concert and that was time that was taken away. So for a whole year, I tallied how much time I lost from my daily teaching. Because one of the things I struggled with as a teacher is every March or April, I would find myself crossing whole units off. You know, like, oh, guess we're not getting the rocks and minerals this year. Like, I yeah. felt like such a failure because I couldn't seem to teach everything I was supposed to teach. Yeah. So at the end of that year, I tallied it all up. And it came to something like over 9,000 minutes, wow. which, right, which sounded huge, but it was also, it didn't have any context. So then I converted it into four and a half hour days. Because where I was teaching, we technically should have had four and a half hours each day to teach. You know, a six-hour school day, minus 45 minutes for specials, minus 45 minutes for lunch or recess. So when you do that, it came out to oh, it was something like either 32 or 33 days of teaching that I didn't have. And you might think that would stress me out more. Actually, it was this huge relief. Because I thought, oh, No wonder I can't get to it all. That's not my fault. When a sixth of the time is being taken away. And of course, I also tallied up how many minutes we were told we were supposed to teach everything. You know, the the literacy team had told spend 70 minutes a day in reader's workshop and 60 minutes a day in writer's workshop. And, you know, all of that came to five hours and five minutes a day. But we only had a four and a half hour day. Um, So I think we have to acknowledge we can't do it all. And, and then say, okay, so if some stuff's gonna fall off the plate, let's be more thoughtful about what we're taking off the plate. Like when I did yeah. that experiment, that was when I stopped caring. Why am I spending time correcting homework that I know the kids aren't looking at, parents aren't looking at it. I know because I see the papers like that fall like kids' backpacks in the hallway. Yeah. Um, I, it, it wasn't really informing good teaching. Uh-oh internet drama is it me um i got it so that's one suggestion can you see me again mike yeah we had a little bit of a glitch so we missed oh no well just for a little bit when you're talking about the you know the different ways that you know you've got all these distractions coming from your classroom that last little bit and how it was making you feel right? That, oh, I'm not in control. But now that I know I can't teach five and a half hours and I've only got four and a half. So what parts are we choosing to not, right? Continue. Did you hear me talking about homework? No. Very, you could, yeah, talk that about was one I cut out? Yes. Right yeah. on. Because I want listeners to hear this. Okay, that good. was when I stopped caring about homework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't really informing good teaching. It was a waste of my time. A lot of it was a waste of the kids' time, if I'm going to be yeah. totally honest. Um, I just chose to put that one off to the side. Mm -hmm. So I think, so that's something really important is we have to acknowledge we probably can't do everything that we think we're supposed to do. Um, And so therefore we have to be more thoughtful about what we do do. And so I really believe that self-care is one of the non-negotiables. 
something yeah. that we shouldn't allow. To, we shouldn't say, I'll catch up on sleep on the weekend or I'll exercise yeah. in the summer. Come on. Yeah. Uh, we know that if we don't sleep well, if we don't eat well, if we're not hydrated and if we're not exercising, we can't function as effectively. Yeah. And, and then because we're, we're givers, we got into this profession because we like to be caregivers and take care of other people. So if we really need to guilt ourselves into taking care of ourselves, then we can acknowledge that when we don't take good care of ourselves, it's actually our students who are suffering. Yeah. Because yeah. our temper is short or we're too tired yeah. or, you know. And I think that as educational leaders, when we're talking about principles, when you find yourself in that place and you recognize maybe that some people are starting to get to the place where it's tipped too heavy and not enough in self-care, that it's, it's something we should try to do as well is remove those blocks, uh, the things that are obstructing the work that needs to be done, not only in the classroom, but also for that, that teacher in her life as well, right? And giving permission to, you know what? I don't think you have to stay so late today. Yeah. I got to do a really fun workshop once with a group of administrators from a district in Maine. We had about 15, 15 or 20 administrators for a half a day. And one of the things that we did in that workshop was we brainstormed ways that we could help teachers maintain health and balance in the classroom. Yeah. They came up with such great ideas. And I actually wrote it up as a blog post. So you can find that on my website. Nice. Um, what is your website? Uh, it's leadinggreatlearning.com. Leadinggreatlearning.com. Okay. Yeah. Did you share some of those ideas? Can you, does it, do you remember any of them? Yeah. One of the things they talked about was um, bringing in healthier snacks for staff meetings. Yeah. You know, one of the ways we take care of each other is by bringing food. But if we're bringing brownies and cookies and putting M&Ms on every table, even when we know many of our teachers are working at having healthier eating habits, yeah. It might feel good in the moment, but are we really taking care of them? Right. You know, why not bring cheese and crackers and peanuts and even popcorn, you know, that doesn't have lots of salt and butter on it. We can still bring savory, crunchy, yummy snacks, um, but it doesn't have to be junk food. Yeah. Um, that's just one, one thing that I remember that's, that's off great. the top of my head. Yeah. I have one more question and then I know we're going to have to wrap up. But when I go back to the homework conversation that you shared, I actually am kind of a big believer in that as well, because I think the homework ends up being much more about mom, you know, trying to coach kids through it. And it isn't really a self-learning kind of activity for kids or, or something that's feeding them as much. But yeah. I guess I want to just touch on the conversation I hear sometimes from teachers when they say, well, I'm trying to teach them to be responsible. So it's another version of their SEL, right? Well, I'm giving them this responsibility that they're going to have to learn how to do because they're going to go to junior high or high school or college or whatever the next level is. Right. Yeah. How do you, how do you help teachers through that conversation? Okay. I'm going to answer that, but then remind me, I want to come back to one more thing about teacher health afterwards. Okay. Cause I, I sort of, I threw a big thing on teachers, but I didn't tell them what to do about it. And I want to make sure to do that. Well, you can um, do that first. Go for it. Okay. Yeah. So because, especially because your podcasts focus on the little things we can do. Right. Right. So I think what teachers can do is think about habits uh -huh. and don't try and go from, you know, sitting on the couch to running a marathon. Yeah. But if, if exercise is hard to come by, think about trying to build in 10 minutes of walking a day. Uh -huh. And connect it with your school routine. 
So right now, while teachers are working from home, that might mean, you know, when you have your lunch break in the middle of the day, the first thing you do is put on sneakers and walk around the block. Yeah. Or go, go walk the apartment stairs for 10 minutes. When we're back in school, it's maybe you have sneakers at school and as soon as the last kid gets in the bus, you put on your shoes and walk for 10 minutes. Yeah. So it's about small habits that will accumulate over time. It's not about these big earth-shaking, life-changing yeah. moments. Um, you know, if, if you know every afternoon you crave something salty and sweet, and so you've got a thing of Snickers in your teacher drawer, replace that with some granola bars that have a little bit of chocolate in it that are still sweet and savory, yeah. but that have half the fat and half the calories. That would right. be a small change that we could make. And I think that's the key to overall having a healthier lifestyle is thinking about our, our little routines and habits and how to tweak those so that we're always going from sort of less healthy to more healthy. Yeah, fantastic. No, I, I completely agree. And okay. again, as an educational leader, giving them permission to go for 10 minutes around the block. I've actually had that happen in the middle of the day. I'm seeing a teacher, something's happened in the classroom. Their face shows that they're on the edge of a, you know, cry fest, break down something. Yep. And I say, let me take your classroom. I want you to walk around the block right now. Come yeah. back when you're ready. And yeah. just giving them that permission that they could step back and take care of themselves, right? Huge. It's huge. And I really recommend when I'm working with teachers on health and balance, I recommend that during the school year, they try and connect their healthier routines with their school routine. Mm -hmm. So that it, re it kind of emphasizes that this is part of our job. Yeah. But when I was in the classroom, I would swim every morning before school and it was the way I got to school. So yeah. my shower, my shaving kit and my shower stuff was in my swim bag. So in the yeah. morning I would get up, put on my school clothes, drive to the pool, swim for an hour, get ready, you know, shave and shower at the pool and then go to school. Yeah. And, and I had healthy breakfast foods at the school. I had peanut butter and bananas and oranges and oatmeal that I could make. Um, and so by connecting my exercise routine with my school routine, it meant that I was actually healthier during the school year than I was when I lost my routine in the summer. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And which is kind of happening to us right now because we aren't in those routines. We've had to create a new one in this like work from home kind of environment, right? And that's the key right now while we're, while we're struggling through this is to have some routines and to make yeah. sure that we're thinking about building in healthy food and hydration and exercise into our daily routine. Don't, don't yeah. say I'll get to it later this afternoon if I have time. Right. Um, Cause we'll never have time later. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to insert a different question then for us to wrap up. We well, always okay. have a question. Sure you, don't, you don't want me no, to talk no. about I do. Tim, uh, Tracy, Tim does. Yeah. Tell us a little bit just about what, what would you quickly say to a teacher who said, well, I'm doing homework because it's part of building responsibility. Yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting research out there about homework. Um, and the overall, the body of work seems to suggest, if you look at John Hattie's work, who's done the visible learning work, um, he has shown that high school actually has overall a positive effect at the high school level that's significant. So homework at the high school level is worth doing when we look at achievement. At the middle school level, it has a positive effect but not big enough for it to be worth the time we put into it. So it does connect positively to achievement, but not, not a whole lot. 
At the elementary level, it has a, has a zero effect rate on achievement. And at the primary grade level, it actually negatively impacts achievement. Most of the research that's out there is about how does homework impact achievement. I don't, you don't see research out there that has been done that actually assesses whether or not it teaches responsibility. So there isn't a body of work out there that says when kids have homework, they learn skills of responsibility. I really think about homework, well, there are multiple. I would, if I could wave my magic wand, I'd get rid of it altogether. I recognize that it's, that's harder than that. I look at it from an equity perspective. I think homework is one of those things that reinforces that middle-class kids and rich kids can win at the school game and that poor kids can't. Because yeah. as you said, homework is often about what kind of support do you have at home? Yeah. And so if we're giving work that's gonna require adults to help or even adults to help set up an effective space. Yeah. You know, I, I, we live in a middle-class home. So we have spaces where our kids can do homework and we have school supplies in bins where kids can access them because yeah. my wife and i were both teachers so we know how to set up a classroom our kids have an advantage in that way when it comes to homework because we've created a space that allows it but what about the kid who's living in three homes what about the kid who's living in a campground or in a shelter or their parents have three jobs yeah or they're living at mom's house monday and wednesday night and their uncle's house tuesday thursday night and their grandparents over the weekend and then we're giving them something on monday due friday yeah. And they're supposed to somehow keep track of where they're going to be and where all their stuff is going to be. Um, as a general rule in school, when you ask teachers which kids are pretty successful with homework, it's the middle class kids and the rich kids. Yeah. And when you say which kids are suffering because of homework, it's kids who, who are struggling with financial situations at home. So, so I really view homework as one of those things that further, um, further widens the gap, the equity gap in our schools. And for that reason alone, it's worth questioning. Um, and as, just as a classroom teacher, I did not see homework as something that helped kids build responsibility. Yeah. Beginning yeah. of the year, I could already tell you which kids were going to bring their homework in and which ones weren't. Yeah. And I still tried to teach skills and I gave all kinds of advice and I gave all kids my home phone number so that they could call me when they had trouble with homework. Um, and I had to do it because it was a district mandate, but it was, um, it was something that I just decided to stop caring so much about. There were other ways I could teach responsibility. because um, So here's the biggest problem with that argument that we're teaching responsibility. I have a hard time teaching something when I'm not with my student. So if I'm gonna tell them something at three o'clock in the afternoon, but they're supposed to do it at seven o'clock at night when I'm not with them anymore, I can't support and guide them and teach them. Yeah. So I'd rather focus on helping them learn responsibility skills that I can help them with in class when I can be there to coach and support. Yeah. Um, we, don't need to, we don't need to view homework as our way of teaching responsibility. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for taking time on that question. Yeah, Here's absolutely. our last question. Yeah. If you could get in a time machine and go back to your younger self early on in education, what advice would you give yourself about the little things that make a big difference? Um, I think that I would try and encourage myself to not be so rigid in my thinking. Hmm. In my first couple of years in the classroom, I would have told you where I was going to be when I was 65. 
I would have told you that I was going to be a classroom teacher for my entire career because I loved classroom teaching and I loved kids and I would never go into administration. And that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a classroom teacher. Um, and one of the things that I've learned through my career is that it's so much better to be open to possibilities and to be flexible. Um, when opportunities come along, just because they don't fit into where you think you're going, I would encourage people to take them anyway, because you never know what doors might open when you, when you step through them. Um, and I think that when, I know it's certainly true for me, when I've been doing something for, for several years in a row, it's easy to start get locked, getting locked into this idea that this is what I do and this is who I am. And it's almost like you become more rigid as you, as you stay in one role longer. And, um, and I guess, you know, if you think about what's good for kids, we want kids learning from adults who are flexible and who see themselves as growers and learners and doers. Yeah. And so I guess that's the advice I would give to myself is to, to stay open and be flexible and take opportunities as they come. And uh, just to piggyback on that, what I love about that is you're also showing your kids to do the same in that process, which is important. Always, yeah, I, I think the best teachers are master learners and mm -hmm. we're imparting the craft of learning to our students. And so if we are no longer learning ourselves, how can we, how can we coach and support kids who are learning to be learners? Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking time out of your day to come and be with us. I have really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. So happy to join you both. Yeah, it was nice to meet you. And people should check out your latest book, What We Say and How We Say It Matter, and go to your website. Cool. Thank you. And if you want more help, Mike, I'm working out your like microphone thing. Just let us know. I will certainly let you know. Thank you. Okay. All right. See you later. Thank you. All right. Bye.